Hello, once again, you are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am, as always, your gracious and grateful host. How's everybody doing tonight? I am doing fine. I appreciate you asking. I am almost done, actually, with my scholastic work in grad school for psychology. Very excited about that. I have written so much in academic writing in the last two years, really nonstop, about 2,000 words a week. I think I'm up to probably about a 600-page book at this point of citing and sourcing and bibliography and footnotes. It's just incredible. But I've had a, I've had a fantastic time. I've been getting a lot of interviews, courtesy of my producer friend, Mr. Michael Lee Simpson, who, by the way, is a writer for Variety these days. That's a big deal. A huge deal. And I am proud of my boy. I've known that guy for a long, long time. And I am grateful that he asked me to do this, quite frankly. So, as some of you know who have been listening to The Sound of My Voice, I do occasionally like to do an international high-five section which is where I pull out a particular country that is listening to said sound of my voice. And I like to talk about some crazy facts. But before I do that, I do want to give a special shout out to Canada because, my goodness, the music and the comedy there, you've got to be kidding me. First of all, out of the gate, Neil Young. I mean, come on, Canada. You don't get any better than that. Fun fact, I used to work with that guy over when uh, when I was a record company executive, and he was amazing. Am I bragging? Fuck yeah. I get to. <laughs> it was incredible. But not only that, uh, what, what do we got? We got Rush. Uh, we got Bare Naked Ladies. You know, who doesn't not like Bare Naked Ladies? Uh, Leonard Cohen. I mean, come on. Just all kinds of good stuff. But the comedy out there was also equally fantastic. Brilliant stuff. SCTV, the entire show, the whole thing with Rick Moranis and with John Candy and Eugene Levy, who is now on Schitt's Creek, with the incredible Catherine O'Hara, by the way. Good for them. Hail Canada or O Canada or whatever it is. And speaking of which, I will now play the national anthem of said country, which, by the way, is called O Canada. Everyone knows it, or at least the Canadians do. <laughs> probably, it's probably all. But I will play that. And in addition to, I will also talk about some crazy fun facts that you guys have in their crazy country. Here we go. Off to the races. And, as always, these start off with some big dramatic intros. Here it comes. Sing along, Canada. Oh, Canada. That's all I know of your song. But I will continue to talk about some crazy stuff that you guys are all about. Number one, it turns out that in the area of the Hudson Bay, because of glacial... I don't even know. For some reason... There is actually less mass in the Hudson Bay region, which means there's less gravity, which explains why if you weigh yourself out there, it's a little bit less, a little bit less when you sit out and you set foot in that area, tiny a little bit. Also, you can write a letter in any language, and you can send it to the quote-unquote North Pole, and it goes to Canada for some reason, and you'll get a letter back from Santa. Hawaiian pizza. This is my favorite one, I think, because my God, we've been lied to. Hawaiian pizza, it's not from Hawaii. It's a guy from Ontario. We figured that one out. Pineapple, I'm not a fan. I don't know who is. I don't trust anybody who's a fan of Hawaiian pizza. But lastly, the official phone number for Canada is actually 1-800-O-Canada, which, of course, I called about 10 minutes ago, and they're closed for the weekend. I don't know what happens. I have no idea why you would call 1-800-O-Canada. 
but try it on a Monday through Friday, apparently, from 8 to 5. And who knows? Which basically means that Canada is closed for the weekend. The whole country. And perfect timing. And it's over because I'm going to introduce my next guest. And my goodness, this guy rules. His name is Neil DeMonte. And he's a polymath. And that's basically people that just do a lot of shit. This guy is incredible. He's an actor. He's a musician. He's a storyboard maven. You'll find out about that in a bit. He's a producer. He's a director. Boom, boom. He's also got a clothing line. This guy doesn't sleep. It's called Hellbelly, and it's fantastic stuff. He is also the current head of development and a producer with Robots of Awesome with Sony Pictures. Robots are awesome. That's amazing. We also ended up talking about variety shows from the 70s, which was kind of my thing. And we also nerded out mostly about Star Wars, which he did a storyboard for, for The Phantom Menace, Rush, the aforementioned one, which is why I decided to pick this one out, and the greatest band in the world, and I don't care what you say, Starry Beatles, it's Cheap Trick, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed this show as much as I did making it, because this guy is my boy now. Thanks, Neil. You're a good dude. And uh, that's it. Try calling that number, by the way, any other time. 1-800-O-Canada. I may try it on Monday. Who the hell knows what's going to happen? Hope you're all having a good day, night, evening, 4 o'clock in the morning, wherever you may be. Take care of yourself and bye. And hello, everyone. I have with me the lovely and talented Mr. Neil DeMonte. Say hello to uh, me and everybody else, Neil. Good morning, me and everybody else, Neil. How are you? I'm just kidding. <laughs> how are how are you? How's how's everyone doing? Technically, you don't know if it's morning where they are, right? You got to just kind of be general about it. Just FYI, we're global. Ah, this is true. <laughs> I just found out we're in Ethiopia. That makes me happy. Oh, it makes me happy too. They have good food. I I agree. Vegetarian Ethiopian food is the finest food since food. I don't know. Oh, so with that lovely intro. So the first thing I always like to ask on these on these uh, shows is simply uh, when you were younger, what was the first thing that inspired you when you were a kid? Was it a song or a book or a picture painting? I don't know. Well, you know, like the, uh, the first thing that inspired me as a kid was uh, my mom and dad. Yeah, it was probably under uh, bad parenting. They just let me watch monster movies. And like before there was Elvira that went nationwide. We had, um, when I was a kid, we had the son of Sven Gulli, who is now Sven Gulli, uh, who's actually very popular, but even before him, there was a thing on WSNS TV Chicago, late night called the Monster Rally movie. We had the, it was like this creepy host who would come out from behind some coffins and like would say, welcome, it's time for the Monster Rally movie. <laughs> and he would, he would like introduce like all of these like um, creature features and like horror films that I started to watch as a kid. And then, like, uh, that's what got me into it. And then, like, I was never really scared of him. I was just kind of, I was just very fascinated with the whole, you know, horror and fantasy genre. And um, but then, of course, not too long after that, I became a big fan of Jack the Night Stalker and Dark Shadows that my mom got me hooked on when I was a little kid. And that's what pretty much put it over the edge. That was the, the first thing that really kind of, like, caught my interest. I love the way that they, they use the color palettes for everything and the way that they staged mm-hmm. action. Um, jump scares, pretty much everything along with that genre is what really inspired me. Why do you think that there were that whole graveyard shift kind of um, with a uh, horror thing with somebody presenting like the Elvira thing, like you just mentioned the ghoulie thing. Why was that such a thing back then? Do you think, and why did it go away? I'm not too sure. I mean, like it's the horror community is still a very big thing. And I've noticed uh, 
Uh, I don't know if Elvira retired or not. Um, she usually goes to Monster Palooza, which is, is the uh, horror convention that I go to once a year, actually twice a year. Um, but Svengoolie actually became very popular. Now he's on a thing called MeTV, which I believe is an app and also a station now. And it actually goes nationwide. And I used to watch him growing up when I was a kid. His name is Rich Kaz. And um, he still does it. It's still very popular. Like they have like a late night Saturday night thing where he will introduce a horror movie and kind of keep popping on in between breaks and like in between commercial breaks and doing little skits and so on and so forth. And uh, it's still going on pretty strong. But I I don't know. I don't really know if the younger generation is being inspired by that or not. I know my generation was. Um, Rich Cause, who is the guy who plays Van Gulli, um, actually, and I, we both got in touch on Facebook through a mutual friend. And I told him in an email, you're not going to believe this, but when I was a kid, I used to watch your show all the time, and now I'm doing movies um, really because you inspired me. He's like, oh, my God, that's so cool. He's like, you wouldn't believe how many people have told him that. The guy who played the Hulk, um, Mark, whose last name I don't remember, um, the guy who played uh, Mark, uh, Mark Ruffalo, he actually oh. told, met Sven Gulli recently and told him that, yeah, you inspired me when I was a kid when I was living in Wisconsin. Wow. I was like, what? So that's really kind of cool to hear stories like that. So uh, yeah, you just never know who can be who uh, can when you're doing things like that who you can reach out to and uh, who gets inspired by you. Yeah, th- th- something I love about the um, because clearly what those people were doing is passionate. There's like a passion project mm-hmm. for them. Like I promise you, oh, they yeah. probably do it even if they didn't get paid a lot because it's just mm-hmm. in their blood. And what's great about that when you have those kind of passion projects or inspired projects, you don't know who you're going to touch, right? You, mm-hmm. No idea. So when you talk to this guy and you tell him, you know, decades later, you inspired me, that kind of that that carries through. It's like that. It's almost like an heirloom that you pass down to generations. It's beautiful. Very true. Very, very, very true. Yeah, that's that's something that really I mean, as a kid, for me, it was about music. Right. And it was the mm-hmm. same thing. I would hear these pretty random people that no one's ever heard of. And matter of fact, on a side note, or actually to this point, there's a uh, a musician, a Freddie Johnston, who was back in the '90s, and he's still writing music. And he, he had a big, pretty big hit back in the '90s, singer-songwriter. And um, my friend Michael Simpson, who you know from the podcast mm-hmm. or from doing the writing, he came to me like a third episode, and he goes, "Do you know a guy named? I can get you this guy named uh, Freddie Johnston." And I was like, "Yeah, I, nobody knows him, but I, I absolutely do." And it was the same thing. I got a chance to tell him that through his work, he inspired me, and it was just wonderful. Oh my God, that's amazing! I've got to look him up. Uh, is is this Free D Johnson? Yeah, Free D F E R R E D Y. His first album was produced by Butch Vig, kind of right before. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's just a wonderful singer. He had an album called Perfect World. The, you should listen to the show if you're interested too. He's one of, one of my. He's actually my favorite singer in the world. So it was nice to be able to talk to him. Oh no, uh, kidding! Well, now that you mentioned that, I'm going to go look that up right when we're done with this podcast. Yeah. Listen to a song called Bad Reputation. I mean, the production on it is like Butch Vig Perfection, too. So it's great. Okay, cool. Yeah, thanks for letting me know about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, but that's the thing, right? It's, it's, it's those sources of inspiration that's really the kind of the heart of this podcast is, is how did you find that thing? What did it mean to you? Because obviously they're obscure stuff a lot of times. No one gets influenced by Garth Brooks, let's be honest. It's true. <laughs> it's true, yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> like, you know, and it's the weird ones. It's just small passion projects. But I digress. Um, so I did want to catch on this one thing though, actually, I did notice that you listened, uh, watched a lot of variety shows when you were a kid, Donnie Murray and Sonny mm-hmm. and Cher. Yes. Tell me about and that. He, well, yeah, we, that was like our family get together thing. Like, uh, once a week we would all watch, um, 
like it was Amer- well, I think it was the like American Bandstand on the weekends, and yeah. I believe it was was it Dick Clark, I believe, who hosted that. Oh, huh? yeah, and we would also watch uh, Sunny and Cher together as a family. It's kind of like we all we all like we were sitting around the TV when we were growing up. So like at seven o'clock at night, we'd all have to come home and like, eat together. We would all have our trays. We also there like we're on the TV set and watch shows like that too. Hee Haw was another one that we used to watch. Yes. And uh, Lawrence Welk was the big one. <laughs> yeah, those are the lineup. Those are absolutely the lineup. The thing I like about variety shows is back then they would hand a, they would give one to anybody. <laughs> like everybody had a variety show. Yeah, including mm-hmm. no, not a lot of people remember this. There was a they gave one to Mimes. There was what? Yeah, Shields and Yarnell. Go look them up. They were like the popular Mimes back in the seventies. Like the seventies were weird, and they gave Mimes a variety show. You can go look it up. Oh my God! Wait, that sounds so familiar. Like you know, they have they have a they have a thing on um, uh, I just found on YouTube recently called uh, Fuzzy Memories TV, huh. and I'll bet you something like that's going to be on there because that name sounds really familiar. And I think we used to watch that, but I don't remember it at all. But that name sounds so familiar. I'm sure you did. It, you know, again, that was just the insanity of the '70s of adding a variety show to anybody, including people that can't talk. But. Oh. And the Gong the, Show. <laughs> oh my God, the Gong Show! All those—they were all of them were on like so much coke and God knows what, making all those shows. But mm-hmm. there was such a there was such an innocence about those shows, which is why I thought they were so popular. I agree totally. Like uh, the like I remember in our family too. Like whenever uh, speaking of the, you know, the Gong Show, for example, whenever Chuck Bears would go, "Man, Gene, that dancing machine," <laughs> would come up to go, "Da da 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 da." cushions and like things flying up the whole time and like we're, we're always like we're waiting for me and gene the dancing machine to come out and like that's it we're all like die laughing and it was okay. awesome of course it's yeah, kind of you mad at us all too you just never knew what you were going to see like with ruth buzzy kind of beating that one guy with a purse and you know those kind of things so too. so over the top and wonderful and the last thing i will say about this variety show stuff i've got half a mind in fact maybe you can meet the make or break on this one i got half a mind because i do these intros before like after we talk, I do an intro and explaining who you are and this and that. And I kind of jazz it up a bit. And I'm thinking about maybe in the beginning doing what they used to do in variety shows where it was the kettle drums, right? So, ladies and gentlemen, boom. Mm-hmm. Jack Watson. Da, 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 da. No? No. Yeah. No. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> so moving on, I do want to talk about kind of how you got into the world of where you are now. Um, I know that you uh, you were kind of out in Schaumburg, Illinois for a while, and you were going to be getting an offer for the planner for the city. That sounds extremely unexciting. And then you kind of headed out to L.A. You want to tell me about that process? Yeah, well, um, I was doing pretty good as a student. I was I was at Oakland Community College in uh, Des Plaines, Illinois, and um, I got accepted to USC um, that's, uh, right before that summer to, to transfer. So I was I got my tier degree in Chicago, and I transferred out to California. So right before I transferred, um, I got offered a job with the city of Schaumburg because, like, they like I saw a bulletin board ad that they were looking for someone to like uh, work who was an architecture student to work in the city planning department. And um, I went over for the interview. I thought it was going to be a summer job, so I went in there and like uh, the guys interviewed me. I was I was blown away by what they were doing. They were blown away by what I was doing in school and everything. And they were like, "Hey, we we want to hire you to to work with us." I was like, great. And um, yeah, they said like, yeah, we're done. We're, we're, we definitely want to hire you. So I was under the assumption, like I said, it was, that it was going to be a summer job. I didn't know it was going to like be a summer job that was going to lead. I was going to basically uh, work with them while I was going to school. Then after school, um, I had a job set up to like start work with them full time as an architect. 
And um, so I went and when I when I did the interview, I said, "Oh, like, uh, yeah, I'll be working here for the summer. Then I'm gonna I'm gonna be going to California to finish up to finish up my education." And all their faces dropped, and I was like, "Oh, what are you talking about?" And um, what's what's with the weird look? And they said, "Oh, I don't know if you got this. If you understand what we're trying to explain to you, but we actually want to hire you on a full time basis. So, like, whenever you're done with school, you'd work with us. And then when you're completely finished with school and you graduate, um, you'd have a job here for us, like uh, waiting for you." And I didn't know if I really wanted to do that, so I just kind of like um, sadly didn't get the job. I got a really nice letter in the mail saying, um, "We loved your qualifications, loved your design skills, but unfortunately, we need someone who's going to actually wanted to stay here in Chicago and work with us." And um, it just wasn't in my heart. Like I, I think architecture was a really good thing for me to study because um, I learned a lot about perspectives and environmental, uh, like and how to like uh, it's called contextualism, which is basically being able to fit things in a certain environment and make it all work together cohesively. Um, in a design element element phase, um, and uh, that helped out tremendously with my design skills. And uh, but like, yeah, it just wasn't my heart. Really, wasn't into it. So when I came out to California, um, I was actually going to school for architecture, and um, then I wound up like uh, just going to art after that. But I kept sneaking off to the uh, film school at USC to watch movies. So the USC film school, um, which is an amazing school, by the way. Um, they give priority to, to the film students, so I was in the art department. So between classes, I would go over there whenever and whenever they didn't have any film students, like renting out the machines to go watch movies and study. I would just go there and watch like laser discs back then, which had like the director's commentary and videotapes that had director's commentaries on them. So I would check them out and we'll watch all the old classic movies like The Graduate, you know, Gandhi, um, mm. uh, Casablanca, and watch them with, with director's commentaries. And uh, Roger Ebert was a good person to listen to with doing commentaries on there. And I would watch the movies. I would kind of like learn how to do camera shots. I'm like, oh, this is very interesting. I never even thought about that. And um, one thing that stuck out to me in particular was uh, the uh, they were doing a director's commentary with Mike Nichols on The Graduate. And um, they were talking about why they shot through the fish tank yeah. in one of the scenes. And it uh, really made a lot of sense to me. And it seems like I, like slowly I started kind of really wanted to see if I could get into film. Because originally I came out to California to be a comic book artist. And um, when I found out how much comic book artists get paid, I'm like, yeah, this is just not, this is not going to work. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so after graduation, after graduation, I was just doing random art gigs and like, you know, the usual prostituting myself out all over this town. And um, one of my friends actually um, recommended that I try doing storyboarding. Because he was working as a PA on movie sets at that point in time. And I was like, what's storyboarding? And he told me it's like doing comic books, but you get paid more money. And it's like really quick sketches and like mostly like just a little bit above stick figures. And I said, really? You get paid for doing that? So like, um, yeah, I went and I got a book called Shot by Shot. And uh, within five minutes, I learned how to do it because there's a section in there that talks about storyboarding. And I was looking at that and looking at how Alfred Hitchcock did the storyboards for North by Northwest. And uh, there was just like some random just like five or six pages that showed you how to go about going from scene to scene to scene and the movements that go along with it. So it's basically like doing a comic book, but just adding a lot of camera direction with like arrows and zooms and trucks and pushes huh. and cranes and everything. And then I learned how to do storyboarding. And um, I started just kind of putting it out there that I could do that. And my friend Dean Jones that I met after school through a mutual friend, Dean was a makeup artist on Star Trek. And he was teaching in the summers at uh, Cinema Makeup School over by uh, um, Koreatown here in Los Angeles. And um, I met him and he was hiring me to do bits and pieces for him, too. And he, he asked me about storyboarding. And I told him, yeah, I just learned how to do that. I'd like to give it a try. Then uh, he referred me to some friends of his that were doing a film called Vampires Anonymous with Michael Madsen at the time. And I got the job. I got paid like $200 to do the entire movie. Hmm. 
and uh the uh so like i and i did it and then like i actually wound up getting cast in the movie as a vampire character that's how i got my sad card there you so go. i was making the director laugh and he just said like hey you ever thought about acting I'm like well yeah i just didn't quite know how to get into it and he said we've got this role who i kind of pictured in my head of being like antonio banderas playing this funny vampire character and if you want to give it a try like you know, if you know, we'll give you the lines if you want to come and do the audition so um so yeah i'd love to give it a try i went in and like shockingly beat out like about 50 something actors that went in, including paul rodriguez and there was also wow. a, an actor from uh walker texas rangers spinoff called sons of thunder that i beat in the audition too i couldn't believe it and i thought it was a joke when the um casting director called me offered me the role i'm like <laughs> well really because i didn't even have a headshot when i went into the audition <laughs> and i'm sure well he had that look on his face because they had the producer and the director who i knew and um the casting director was just giving me this look like you know, like, oh, this is the director's friend. Nice yeah. to meet you. Yeah. You don't have an agent or not, like, or a headshot. You have nothing. I'm like, yep, I, I came here with my balls in my pocket. And I'm throwing them on the table right for you. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I luckily got the part. And, like, I, within two days, got my, I got Taft Hartley and wanted to get my SAG card. Then that's how I segued into that one movie basically helped me get my acting career going and also helped me um, get my film career going. That's what kind of started everything, chain balling after that, the referrals mostly. Wow. Yeah, that, that's what they call, uh, I just learned this actually, the change agent, where someone just kind of comes, like an, an event comes in or a person comes into the story and just flips everything around and heads it to a new direction. That I've never heard that term before, but I'm going to use it from now on. Thank you. That's... It's, a, and it's a great term, right? Because it's, that, it's, it's just that thing, it's that divining rod that suddenly just gets you know, the water witch of your life, essentially, that we're going to find a new path for you. Um, so I got to go back for a heartbeat, actually, on the storyboarding thing for one second, because I'm a storyboarding nerd. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a big Macquarie fan. I remember when I was a kid, Star Wars fan, you know, I'd look at those old Ralph Macquarie, basically Metropolis designs of the uh, C-3PO, mm-hmm. uh, for the slang thing. And I was fascinated. And what's, what's interesting to me is how does someone like you as a storyboard artist, uh, obviously you work with the script person, the, the, the screenwriter. How do you know what it looks like? without being the director or the writer um well it's it's a uh, it's kind of interesting because um everybody's got their own different way of doing something like uh so usually what i do is like if i like i, I work as a director too so i kind of know what i want but um the like whenever i go into work with directors too like it, it you'll have like newer directors um who'll who have a certain way of doing things and you have like older directors who have been who have a lot more experience who have their way of doing things so usually I'll get referred by a producer. Producers will usually call me first. And like, I'm like the first person to get hired. And um, they'll, they'll say, hey, we want you to meet with so-and-so director at so-and-so time and like start sketching things out with them. So I'll go meet with the director. And I'll see if they're like, you know, new or if they're, if they're experienced. I'll ask them what, what they like, basically. So um, they'll tell me what they'll like name some. I just tell them to like for your personal style, just tell me some movies that you like or some TV shows. And if I don't have them in my personal catalog, I will go out and rent them so I can see what you want, basically. And they'll usually like tell me like, oh, I like you know, I, I like the Coen Brothers or I like uh, Stanley Kubrick. Or I would even mention certain movies that they like too, like um, or TV shows. Like I like The Practice and I like Sons of Anarchy and I like um, The Conversation. So I'll go out and I'll rent those movies. And I'll watch the movie all the way through and I'll I'll pick up on what they like. And um, once I once I do that and do that research then i know what they're going for as far as like the style that they want um so that's kind of like how i usually do stuff as far as like storyboarding goes and then um a lot of the times when i get called in sometimes i'll have to do the entire movie other times they'll call me in if, if there's you know because these days everything's in a rush 
like when we were kids, I remember like shooting schedules would go for like months. Now it's like you've got to whole, shoot an entire movie in like, you know, 18 days or yeah. even less. And you're like, Jesus, how am I going to do this? So you have to yeah. pre-plan everything. So a lot of the times what they'll do is they'll call me in just to do all the action scenes and stunt scenes and like um anything complicated. So I'll sit with the director and I'll work all those things out. They'll usually leave me out of doing conversation stuff, but just like it's all like, you know, anything very physical involving a lot of stunt special effects or what I would get called in for. And I'd sit and work with them on how to stage everything out. So people that are more experienced will just say like, oh, just, you know, here's the script, do these scenes and, uh, you know, and uh, go home and like knock them out. And if I want any changes, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll call you and say, ch change these things and like do some revisions. Other times people who are like newer directors will want you to be there with them and you can like lightly sketch everything out like in thumbnails. And then if they like the, the rough sketch that you do, then you go home and add detail onto it. Then you just like, you know, email them uh, all the work when you're done. And that's how I usually do it. And it sounds like you're really responsible for the look of the film to a lot of, to a large degree, I would imagine. Oh yeah. A lot of times you work that out in the storyboarding process because um sometimes I love like a concept artist who does like those, you know, well nowadays everything's being done with um the you know three D with the three dimensional painting and stuff like that too. Mm -hmm. Um with Photoshop and like all these other elements that I don't even know how they work. Um but yeah, but like usually they'll have a couple concept art pieces um, that they'll show me that they've had done previously. I'll say, okay, I know what you want. And I'll, I'll just go ahead and start like knocking stuff out. Um, but yeah, you're like the storyboard person is usually the one who's doing the entire staging. So everything that like for anybody who doesn't know what that is, storyboarding is like doing a visual comic book with movement um, that you do for an entire film. So everything that you see on TV or that you see on in a feature film that's per shot someone like me has drawn previously so that way the uh the director can take that to the director of photography who's his right hand man or woman who basically uh will like he'll say here's what i want to look like and the director of photography would like like the set to look like the way you did in the drawings and stage everything it's, it's just basically like a visual template to show people like what the entire movie is going to look like pretty much like a comic book only with showing movement right. inside panels and um it's uh yeah you're pretty much responsible for that whole thing like like uh the director might say um for an action scene that's what i have like the, a lot of shots inside the inside the car with like lights passage you have to kind of plan ahead and go okay well, that's the how uh alfred hitchcock would call that term called process you like it would like rock the car from the outside and, and have like something moving in the background or have cameras mounted inside you want and they want to show the outside other directors will say well i want to like i want to show a big street scene with cars racing and you have to have cameras on the corner and you have to work things out with the stunt crew and go stage by stage from a to b like how this is all going to happen right. and that's something that's more pre-planning of course and also with bigger budgets so yes with smaller budgets you'll try to think of creative ways to do like camera to, to do like car chases you have a bigger budget you'll work with well you'll have to work with a stunt team and kind of coordinate like in drawings how this whole thing's going to stage you know bit by bit by bit just to make sure everybody like is safe and they know where, where everyone's going to hit their marks and that's how you pretty much go with the storyboarding process yeah and here i thought you just drew pretty pictures so i want to move <laughs> on um to clan of the vein now, i i know you got this this uh comic speaking to comics you got this comic line uh, with with Clan of the Vein. I really want to hear about that too because that's up my alley. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, that's probably the the one passion project that I had. That's like one of the loves of my life. Um, that particular project, um, there's like four movies that I want to do. They're all based on seasons, but they're not really connected. Um, huh. 
Cloud of the Vein would be like the what I would call my winter film. And it's, it's, it's it was originally designed to be a film, but then like a lot of people like the comic book aspect of it. So I decided to make it as a graphic novel. Um, basically, the whole color palette is uh, set up to look like winter. You've got a lot of blues, grays, um, uh, you know, icy whites and things along those along those lines. And um, you only you only introduce color during certain scenes. So um, the uh, that project is ba- the best way to sum it up is is uh, Die Hard with Vampires. So um, we have a main character who's a vampire character who's also a vampire hunter, and um, you kind of go through this whole process of how how he how he came to be and like what what's happening. So um, his character, his name's Ian McBain. He basically rid the world of vampires, or so he thought, and he's now like a like a rotting away on an island with no sense of purpose. Um, he basically uh, keeps having these dreams of this woman that haunts all of his. She basically haunts all of his dreams, and uh, you you start to find out later on that there's a whole gigantic plot involving the few remaining species of vampires left that he didn't even know about that existed. They formed a they formed a cult, and they're obviously trying to lure him out of hiding to get to him, and to. Uh, and uh, he when he uncovers that, and it all kind of ties into to his ex-wife, um, and uh, how that whole plot comes to be, without giving too much away. So, um, yeah, that project is going pretty cool. Like, I didn't think of, it's funny. I thought about doing it as a movie, and a lot of people we pitched it to loved the idea, but it said it's going to cost a lot of money. And since you have a, a new IP that people are just now learning about, um, it's going to be a little bit difficult to sell because it's kind of expensive. So we, so like uh, one of my friends actually without giving i don't want to give too much away but one of my friends actually suggested doing it as an anime and i said really i never even thought about that huh. and um he put me in touch with a couple of guys who worked on who work on a huge film and like they um have an animation company so i pitched to them over a four-hour meeting which went really well wow. and they just said if you could put some elements together because what they do is they do like five projects a year that are basically based on existing IPs on video games and other animated series that are already out there. But they love the project and said if you can just get these four things going, uh, you need like an executive producer um, who's also a writer to handle a writer's room. You need to get like a showrunner and um, a couple of actors to come do some uh, voiceovers with it and, and uh, like see if you can get like an animation company to, to come on board to put it together. And if you can get all these elements going, we'll help you get it going as a series. And I said, okay, great. I'll take care of it. So um, I got three out of the four so far. So I just have to get uh, some voice actors now. So like, um, we're just right now going through the process of taking my artwork and seeing how we can pick a style that's going to go really cool with something we can pitch towards like Netflix to make this into an actual animated series. I love that idea. If you've, if you need the, uh, if you need the voice of a werewolf, you know where to go. I got the Wolfman Jack thing already going on. Ow! Oh, done. <laughs> done. We'll be calling. Oh, um, great. Thanks. No. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, we're pretty, pretty excited about it, too. So we've been really busy putting that together right now, too. So like, we're just working with um, one of my, my uh, producing partner, Jacob Silver, over at Sony. We have a company called Robots of Awesome. Yeah. He introduced me to uh, one of the heads of Sony Animation, Glenn. And Glenn and I have been talking now. We had a really cool meeting over at my friend Jeffrey Gunn's InfoList party. And... um. We met up over there and like talked about some stuff and like uh, it was cool because my girl, my girlfriend actually it was her it's her first time kind of experiencing something like that through me. She's like, "What?" She goes, "God, I had no idea like all these things you're involved in." I'm like, "I don't even know what I'm involved in anymore." Um, <laughs> like uh, it was cool because she was like completely confused while we were sitting there talking about how we're gonna go about getting this thing done. But yeah, but the uh, Glenn over at Sony is the guy who kind of was really cool and he said like he's got access to a lot of his animation companies and I sent him the email that I received from the company that we want to pitch this to. 
And, and he goes, yeah, this is the first steps in it being greenlit. So congratulations. It's a lot of work, but we, we, have, we have to like uh, just get these things moving. So he said, let's, let's, get, let's meet up soon and start trying to find out which animation style we can do regarding motion capture. Because everything's being done with virtual production right now. Yeah. And for anyone who doesn't know what that is, they'll have like live action directors going onto a green screen stage and getting people wearing motion capture suits. And um, the characters are already in the computer. And then like, as the, the actual directors direct the actors wearing um, these uh, body movement suits, they'll be walking through environments and the background gets rendered automatically, kind of like how they did the Mandalorian TV show, but it's all done like as a looking like kind of almost like a video game. And that's how a lot of these animation products are being done these days. Right. So like, we're just trying to pick a style to go along with my artwork right now. So once we lock the style down, we'll start like, you know, getting character designs done and then start like, um, you know, doing a test animation so we can bring it this, bring it to this company to see if they want to green light everything too. And Jacob actually offered to get it going as a video game because he was one of the guys that got the call of duty video game going originally. I, I am thrilled with every single word you just said, because it involves comics a hundred percent. I do want to talk actually uh, about, Frontmen, because I know that you just had some recently some pretty good news, and tell us what that's all about. Oh yeah, um, years a couple of years ago, uh, my friend John Simon, he's got a company called Nostrajanus, and uh, he asked me if I wanted to try my hand at directing something. I said, you know, honestly, I'd like to. Like, I want to get my feet wet with that process. So he wrote a political comedy series called Frontmen, and um, it's basically about these three guys who were former college students, and they all had a rap band together, and. Uh, when the band broke up, they still stayed in touch and everything too. So the, the two, the two like white guys, you know, quote unquote, left to go do business, and one became like a loser. The other one became like a like a like a business guy, and the other one, who's the who's the black character, he took off to go like a, do odd jobs and so on and so forth. And he was like helping out his mom at home. So the uh, the whole premise is basically about these like um these three these three guys reunite together to help out um the black the black characters. Uh, mother, because her house is about to be taken over by evil land developers, and they and like he basically te- tells uh, his two friends to use their quote unquote their whiteness to kind of get him out of the situation. So they kind of pull this big scam and a caper to get to get the uh, the evil landowner guy away from the the way from the um, the black character's mother, so they won't he won't like close down on her on her property. Mm-hmm. So uh, then they want to, th- that guy actually winds up um, being very impressed by how they did that. And he learned a lesson. Now he actually wants to fund their fund them to go out and help people that are like, um, you know, that are like having a hard time. It's basically like the the David and Goliath situation. Like, he funds these guys to go run scams to get back at like quote unquote the man, uh, get back at them, so he can help people out of bad situations, and um, kind of like a Robin Hood or like a reverse Robin Hood in a way. So um, I like I don't know too much about politics, nor do I even care about politics, but um, I saw the humor in it. And uh, it was challenging for me, for me because uh, I don't, like I said, I don't know anything about politics at all. And uh, it was it was cool how it was like how do I create these camera shots and how do I design the look of everything to kind of go along with people who like wouldn't necessarily be into politics who would would want to watch this show too. So I just kind of threw in my old like my own Seinfeld and Cheers and like Night Court <laughs> kind of background, which which is Night me Court. into like into into the script. Yeah, you know, thank you. I mean, I love Night Court. Oh God. Um, uh, so I kind of like started doing that. So like when we have um, the way I directed it was the the style I came up with was whenever someone's going off on a political rant about politics and so on and so forth, I have reaction shots of of uh, the other side characters making funny faces and doing comedic things mm-hmm. and things you, things going on in the background that actually will make people 
want to watch it and like mm-hmm. I will laugh at stuff that even though it's you know it's a funny script it's a it's a great show um so we did a couple episodes and uh you know like um the we did a couple episodes we had a premiere a couple of years ago um we made it into a pilot episode it was sold out down over in downtown los angeles got a lot of press for it and then like um we waited for a while to like shop it around and then uh yeah so like it's gonna be up on amazon prime pretty soon too so i'm pretty excited about it too i think in the next couple of weeks it should be up there so like yeah please Holy keep a look up excited about it we're doing some more episodes too we're just planning out how we're going to do the do a story arc on one of the characters in the show front man look for it on amazon prime i cannot wait i love talking to some of you guys because you're all multi-hyphenates like no one does just one thing and including that i know that you have your new hellbelly clothing line and i want to hear about mm-hmm. that and where that went and why you did it um yeah basically like the uh I, I want to do it because, like, a long time ago, I was designing band logos for people, and they all liked my artwork. And I just, uh-huh. you know, like, it was, I loved doing that everything by hand, like, doing everything in pen and ink with, like, brush and everything. And I just love that style. The guy who influenced me was Pusshead. Remember him? He did all the uh, um, Misfits album oh, covers. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Did some of the Metallica ones, too. He's got this really cool, distinct, highly detailed style, but very anatomically correct. Um, that's what kind of influenced me, honestly. And, uh-huh. um, so yeah, so like uh, I had a, I, I did some artwork for a friend of mine a long time ago for a clothing line. I never got paid for it. Nothing ever took off with it. So I just had it sitting there here, and I own I own all of it. So um, one of my friends, her name is Stephanie Long. She's got a company called Wicked Cat Clothing, and um, she's got like very it was very very basic stuff. Like it had she had like a like some logos on her on her clothing with some words on it. So I said, hey, I've got some artwork. I, you know, you're welcome to it. If you want to stick it on some shirts and stuff like that, and shorts and see if it sells, you know, like I'd be happy to, you know, go half season on you. So yeah, so some I did some. I just gave her some pieces. They started selling, and then she said, hey, why don't we partner up and do some stuff? I said, yeah, I'd love to. I said, you know, I've got this idea, and um, the idea that I had was, you know, like you see angel wings on everything on the back mm-hmm. of like, you know, like a, I think Daryl from uh, um, Walking Dead had them on the back of his jersey, nice. and. Uh, they're like they're on walls everywhere, but no one's ever done bat wings. So I said, "Hey, I've got this idea to do about this doing this big evil pair of bat wings that are huge on the back of like a hoodie." And uh, what do you think about that? She goes, "That yeah, sounds pretty cool." So I did a big drawing of it. And we, one, my friend Eli James, who I love to death, who runs a company called Ghost Circus Apparel, um, I talked to him, and uh, he showed he kind of gave me some good pointers how to do it and how to go about selling stuff, and um, referred me to a to a printer who's in his who's in his complex. So I took the artwork down there and got them put on some hoodies. And um, yeah, so like my, so we decided to call like my sideline called Hellbilly. So I'll be co-partnering with Wicked Cat Clothing. And um, yeah, the first item that I personally designed is called the the Fallen Hoodie. So it looks like a fallen angel with these giant bat wings on the back of it. So like, uh, yeah, I, I what I did was I we printed up about 24 of them. As a, cause I think with the company that we're using, you've got to print up runs of 24. And I wore it uh, to LA Fashion Week and got a lot of press because of it. And um, next thing you know, we're getting phone calls saying, hey, like, uh, where can we order the hoodie? So we have a soft launch right now. Like, um, they're available on de- they're available as pre-orders right now. But then we're actually going to be having the actual um, launch at Monster Palooza this year in Pasadena, which yes. goes from June 3rd to June 5th. So you can buy them there in person. I'll be wearing my custom one, too. So we're going to be having a custom line, too. So we have, like, the basic hoodie for a certain price. Which look pretty cool. But if you want to get a custom one made, it's a, it's a little bit more money. But you have like rivets and like custom patches and distressing involved with it too. And um, what we did was my friend Mike Mangan is actually playing keyboards for the Cult. 
so I met him and the drummer um, at the show in San Diego, and I gave them some hoodies for the band. And uh, said, yeah, just wear them, wear them every day. Like, yeah, you're free to wear them on stage. Just get, get me pictures, basically. Sure. So I've also got some friends in Metallica. And, um, I've got my, my friend, um, he's dating one of the guys in ministry. And I, I, I know some of the guys in uh, Jane's Addiction and, and Smashing Pumpkins. So I'm going to get hoodies to some of these guys. And hopefully they can, like, wear them on stage during the shows and get some exposure with them and get the, get, get the brand going. So yeah, it's it's pretty cool. It's it's kind of designed for people that like who are like you know the clothing line basically for Hellbilly and my particular thing was um, a lot of people like to get uh, these full body tattoos, but they uh, necessarily don't want to get the tattoo, but they want to have the feeling of the empowerment that a tattoo gives them. That was the impression that I had and the inspiration that came for the clothing line. So like the for example, I'm designing a pair of joggers that have a big thigh tattoo that would wrap down the side of the leg, so it looks like a tattoo. But at the same time, it's it's giving you the feeling of that of having the tattoo without necessarily having to get a tattoo, and that's how I kind of came up with the whole idea for the whole thing. So I partnered with Wicked Cat Clothing, and we're doing a launch. Um, to, you know, like I said, Monster Palooza this year. If you want to buy them in person, if not, you can always buy them online at wickedcatclothing.com and uh, just look for the banner that says "The Fallen." That's the first item that I have released. The second thing, I've got a pair of joggers and a pair of leggings that'll be coming out later on this year too. And I've got a whole uh, swimsuit line too for men and women coming out this summer as well. You're becoming an empire unto your own self. Here's a good segue into music and in that, first of all, I've always wanted to have a band name called Unreadable Logo, like a death metal band. Yeah. Right? It's pretty mm-hmm. obvious. But the real question is, what is your favorite logo? Because I have mine. Out of bands? Yeah. Um, you know what? I really like the Celtic Frost logo. Ooh, interesting Celtic call. Frost is- yeah, Celtic Frost is like my favorite all-time metal band. Oh my god, they were the fathers of the death metal scene. I like their lettering because a I can read it, and secondly, um, their logos look so cool. They've got that thing, the two Megatherian logo, which is like a skull with all these like pentagram and hexagram things coming off of it with spears and everything. Oh, I'm looking at it right logo. now. Yeah, this is cool. Yeah, looking at it right now for the first time. Yeah, it looks really cool. It's very occultish looking, and that's what drew me to it. Like a lot of the other band logos. I mean, like I mean, all those bands are amazing, like all those death metal bands, but I can never read their damn names. I've got to sit there and stare at it for like an hour. It's like reading graffiti. You know, like it's like just gibberish, and like then you have to focus and it ends up. But yeah, but Celtic Frost is the band that started the whole thing, and they're the ones that um I love their their logo is one that really inspired mine. Who's yours? Who's your, what's your favorite logo? You know, well, first of all, on a side note, I will say I paid a guy in my art department over at Warner Brothers Records to make my name as a death metal logo, which I still have, mm-hmm. 20 bucks. It was worth the Facebook profile photo, believe me. Um, but it's Metallica. And the reason that, I know that logos are good when you can shove any word into that logo other than the actual word and you can still see Metallica. Mm-hmm. Like, right? Like, if you put the word, I don't know, soy milk into that Metallica logo, you would see Metallica. Yeah, that's the clever. That's the that's the cleverness about doing logos. You have to kind of like get them to look. If you get them to look like something um, that like attracts your attention to it, like that's it. Like causes you to like fl- have a flashback in your head of something that you previously saw, that, and like it'll just stay in your memory. Like the lightning bolts for the M and the A, are, like are, are going to nail it the right. whole time. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah, in fact, you want to do something really funny. Um, yeah. You remember the you remember the band Samhain, you know Danzig? Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. Did you notice where they got that skull from? No, I had no idea. It's the the Crystar Crystar was a comic book that Marvel Comics did, The Crystal Warrior. Okay. Issue number ten has Crystar standing on that skull. It was done by Michael Golden, who's the cover artist of that comic book series. And yeah, I I have the issue at home. And um 
one day I was looking at the logo and that looks so damn familiar. Huh. And then like, uh, yeah, I just one day just like was looking, I was going through my comic book collection and refiling some stuff. I'm like, wait a minute. That's the freaking Danzig logo. It was taken directly off the Crystal number 10 front cover off the bottom. Wow. You know, no lawyers were consulted about that one. Yeah. I don't know how they got away with it, but like literally cut out of it and stuck on the album cover. I couldn't believe it. Is amazing. So when you are writing, when you are working, when you're doing something that is creative, I'm assuming you're going to listen to some music. What is it? And do you have different songs for different moods when you're working? Yeah, like uh, the band, like Rush, of course, is the yes. number one thing. Like, I'm a huge Rush fan. And there's something about the music that, uh, um, like, uh, that, that I really am able to tap into. I listen to them. It's very mathematical. And they keep changing beats and progressions all the time, too. So just kind of like, you know, I put on certain songs. Like, if I'm, like, I'm listening to it, if I'm, like, for example, like, I draw to their music. There's a word called synesthesia, which basically is uh, derives from a Baudelaire statement, which is being able to see to uh, see music into your colors. And um, that's kind of like what I do. I didn't even know there was even a word for it. I just kind of like listen to the music and let the music dictate what I'm going to do. So if I want to do a car chase scene, I'll listen to the, the instrumental of Free Will from Rush. And <laughs> for every beat that goes on, like for every drum beat, snare and hi-hat and cymbal and like bass riff and guitar riff, I design the, I design the actions to go along with those things. For example, if like for the, the, for the riff of uh, Free Will, for example, let's say, for example, if I'm drawing an X-Wing fighter flying through flak and um, it's going to dive down and like take out like a Death Star base. Um, the get the the solo of Free Will goes beats of the bass. I pictured like flax flak explosions going off, and the and the X wing is kind of zigzagging between them to get around it. Then when the guitar solo kicks in, goes that like I picture the ship kind of whippoorwilling around, dipping down, like firing lasers to every single beat part that goes off. And that's how I come up with stuff like that. So, like, yeah, a close friend of mine, Scott Spear, who's a director that I work with quite a bit, um, asked me one time, how do you come up with camera shots like that? And I said, like, honestly, I was doing this as a kid, like, uh, playing with my X-Wing fighter, flying, you know, like, um, and blowing out my Death Star, uh, gas, like, my Death Star station when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I imagined it playing along with, like, music and stuff like that, too. For every laser beat, for every laser that whips by my head, it was just, like, me taking the toy and just kind of playing with it. And um, I've used the exact same camera shots now as like as an adult that I was playing with as a kid. So just you know being on the playground the whole time. But I do it all to music. And I was trying to explain to him how it works. And I said, here, let's listen to the song. And, and I played the song. And I was drawing little sketches out and showing him beat by beat how I do that. And he was like, wow, that's crazy. I'm like, yeah, I just it, to me, it just comes so natural because I've been doing it since I was a kid from just playing with toys the whole time. And um, that's kind of how I came up with that whole idea for that thing, too. But like Rush is like Rush and Metallica, are the two bands that... I like that um, kind of influence a lot of my, like my, my feet, my, uh, a lot of my film shots that I do. Cause uh, I like using, when I do film, when I design stuff for films and everything too, I use a lot of cam- like a lot of comic book angles because comic book artwork influenced me a lot when I was a kid. So I like very dynamic perspectives and like be able to capture a bunch instead of like, I'm not a big fan of cutting. So I like being able to do a wide shot and see how many things you can kind of have going in that one shot. And uh huh with multiple layers instead of having to keep cutting back and forth to showing inserts of a lot of things. I think that gets kind of, you get lost in that uh, way. I think when you, for me personally, when you cut a lot, um, which, you know, is going back and forth, back and forth, you lose the viewer sometimes. I think if the viewer just kind of can sit there and just enjoy like one big piece of action, um, they feel more like into the actual film and it feels more real to them. I think when you cut, you're taking them out of the element. That's why I'm not a big fan of cutting like in, and doing a lot of insert shots for things. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. 
I, 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 sorry, pretty much all I could hear from that point on was uh, Russia's YYZ. That's all I'm hearing right now. Oh, I love that song. Oh, my God. It's amazing. It's like, like, can I be more of a stereotypical middle-aged white guy? I love Rush. That's my thing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, me too. It's like, um, yeah, like we saw we saw them at their farewell tour. We didn't, and we didn't even know it was their farewell tour because apparently yeah, they forgot that's to right. everybody. And um, yeah, then we then I found out that you know, like uh, yeah, no one knew Neil Peart had a uh, brain cancer. And then like uh, last year, it was you know, two years ago. I remember driving. It was right before the pandemic. I was driving to go to my office to go work, and um, they were announcing the way that Neil Peart died, and I was like, what? And I was in traffic. And on the 405, I almost lost control of the car. I just got really upset. It was like losing your great uncle, you know? And wow. I mean, I'm so, I mean, my God, I don't think any celebrity's death has hit me like that. Tom Petty was pretty bad. Um, but uh, like, I'm such a freaking Rush fan. I mean, like, every drummer, I think, had a heart attack when Neil Perk passed away. No one knew he was sick. Um, so like, I got to the office and I was trying to work at this. I was doing a commercial at that point and I just couldn't even focus. I was like, taking breaks, going to the bathroom and cry. I'm like, people, what happened to you? I'm like, I, my favorite, my, the, my muse just passed away. And I was trying to explain to them what it's like to lose. Like, I've never, I've never met him. I've met Alex and Getty, but I've never met Neil Peart. And um, I was just like having a meltdown. And like, yeah, for about a good two weeks there, I mean, every day I was sobbing, crying. And I was like, what the hell's wrong with me? My God. But it's like, yeah, he inspired, like his, his lyrics were amazing and like his, his drum beats and like it inspired everything that I do. And I even, I even told, I was very happy that when I, for the brief five minutes that I met Getty and Alex, I told them it's really cool to meet you guys because I think I owe you guys royalties. And what are you talking about? Like, since I was a kid, I've been, I've been, I've been like literally doing every single artistic thing to your music. Sure. All of it. Everything I've ever laid my pencil or paintbrush to, I've done to your music. All of it. Star Wars, freaking Jurassic World, everything was to yeah. you guys. And it was it was really cool to get to tell two people that you respect and who you freaking like literally love that 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 the, all the passions that you had came from their music. And that made me feel really good. But like I wish I could have told Neil Peart that, but I heard he wasn't very like uh he wasn't a very big social person. Eh, you know as drumming do the talking. Um yeah. so <laughs> Usually I end these shows a certain way with a particular certain question, but I kind of don't want to do that right now because as we wrap this up, I think this is pretty much what the whole show is about, what I'm going to talk to you about. Because I noticed that you uh, some donate your time helping uh, terminally ill kids uh, as a spokesperson mm-hmm. for a cancer foundation, right? Yes. Um, the foundation is called St. Baldrick's. And they're known for their head shaving events. So, like, a lot of the kids who go in there, like, they don't really make it out, sadly, for for, for uh, dealing with childhood cancers. So, St. Baldrick raises the money, and all the money that they raise goes for childhood cancer research. Um, and what the, when they raise, when they do these events, too, it's kind of cool. Like, family members and, like, um, friends will show their support by getting their head shaved by people like me who come in there. <laughs> and, um, like, they get, like, celebrities and, um, you know, spokespeople to come there and, like, um, and, uh, work with the events and everything, work with the kids. So I've got a friend named Gene who's got a remote controlled R2D2 R- unit. So he brings the R2 unit to the, to the cancer wards and like at the kids oh. all going, you swear to God, the damn thing was real. And, uh, but it's so good to see like, to see the kids so happy and smiling at them too. And like, um, sometimes you don't know because you might never see them again. Um, the foundation was started for uh, a girl named, a little girl named Hazel who I met at one of their events one time. And she just passed away recently, just a few years ago. And I found out when we were at a, we were actually at an event. 
and um, raising money for some kids and everything. And then like, I saw some people crying in the back. I'm like, what, what happened? And I said, I don't know if you know, but Hazel passed away. I'm like, the little girl? Oh, my God. I, I like, lost my shit. I, uh, she was, yeah. I only talked to her a couple of times. But, like, you just think, like, that kid's got their entire life ahead of them. And, like, they haven't even experienced it yet. And then they pass away. So it became a really big thing with me to to help them out with their, with their event a couple times a year. So they have, a, I think it's like twice a year they have a head shaving event, and I help out by bring co- bringing cosplayers, which is great too because the kids, um, you know, they have like those big checks they used to give out like on the prices, right? That are like yeah, phone cord checks, yeah, yeah. So they they usually have the kids kind of all gathered around with their families, and I'll have like you know, for example, like someone dressed up as Captain America and like you know, Green Lantern and, like, Black Panther will hold, like, the checkup. And, like, you kids are all getting this donation for your research and everything, too. And it's cool because the kids get to see all these people dressed up as all the, you know, all the cosplayers. It makes them really happy as, one, you know, all these guys come dressed up as Batman, Wonder Woman, and um, uh, they're really excited. And it makes you feel really good, too. But, like, you know, it's it's really, it, it tears at your heart, too, because you know that some of them are not going to make it. So whenever, every event, whenever I'm done, I'm saying goodbye to everybody. I go in the bathroom and cry my eyes out because it's, it's just hard because, I, you know, I love kids. So it's kind of hard to know that you might not see them again, too. Of course, it's, just, it's really it's really hard, and um, and I, I can only imagine how how hard that is on families too. So it really makes it a lot to me that when you go there and meet people, you become very it's something I'm very passionate about, and I you know I, I love working with them on on those particular uh, events and everything too. I, that's the point of the show, right? At the end of the day, the entire point of the show is exactly what you just did. That's service work. I don't care who you are. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to find connection in this world, because we are in a pandemic of disconnection, but if you want to find connection, you be of service and a fucking story. So thank you for donating your time for this, man. That means a lot to everybody, myself included, clearly. That's why I wanted to focus on it. That being said, that's the end of the show. That's where we say goodbye. Unless you have any burning questions, desires, complaints, comments that you have for me. Uh, the only thing I would say is like I think it's important whenever you're doing well to like, have things come back in a full circle. Like you have to give back. Um, like like I think whenever you, you know, whatever you do things and things are going well, it's good to you for you to give back to your community or give back in some way to some charity in some way. Otherwise, it's like the circle the circle is not complete whenever you, when you do that. You can't be you can't be receiving and not giving. So I think if you you know I mean, when you have the time and you should make the time. I mean, try to help out with charities, donate if you can. Simple thing like getting canned food and donating to a homeless shelter will help. I mean, anything you can do, but you've got to do something in return. Whenever things are, you know, like if, if you're if you're receiving and you're not giving, that's a problem. You need to keep the circle going. If you're and, receiving and not giving, you are out of the balance of the universe. You're absolutely yep, right. Completely, absolutely you have right. to give back. All right, my friend. Um, we're going to say goodbye. I'm going to quote unquote hang up, and then we're going to uh, say a little goodbye after. How's that sound? Sounds great, man. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I'll uh, we'll chat here once I click the end of this uh, little thing, ladies and gentlemen. I give you once again the lovely and talented Mr. Neil Demonte. Say goodbye, Neil. Goodbye, everybody, and thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for having me. Right, and here we go.